The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Mike Kantrowitz, chief investment strategist at Piper Sandler, who's a phenomenal follow here on Twitter. If you don't follow him already, I encourage you to check out his research. But Mike, for those who aren't familiar with your background, just explain who you are, how'd you get involved in markets, and what are you doing now? Sure. I got involved in markets. I'm 41 now. So about 20 years ago, I graduated from college and my parents had set aside a very small sum of money. I didn't grow up wealthier, middle-income, Long Island family. And my brother apparently had told my father on March of 2000 to put it in a Merrill Lynch large-cap global tech fund. And I think it was like $10,000. So two years later, I graduated from college. And my dad's, okay, here's this TMA account that I had some money in it for you. That now is unfortunately down to $3,000. And I was like, what the hell? How do you lose 70% of your, your money? And you know, my parents didn't have a lot. Uh, they're both, my mom's a teacher. And my dad was a headhunter uh, most of his career. And uh, so not a ton of money, and, but they had it. I had a Merrill Lynch financial advisor and nothing, saying nothing wrong about that fine brand. My, my parents didn't have any kind of money that would give them any kind of real financial advice. It was probably the call center. So I was asking my dad, like, how the hell did this par value of $1 down to 30 cents effectively? And it got me angry and also kind of lit a fire under underneath me. And, you know, how do you lose 70% of your wealth? How does that money disappear so quickly? How did this happen? And so that really got me interested back in 2002. And uh, my background from college was economics, but also I was a programmer into that in the early 2000s. And but that really lit a fire underneath my ass and trying to find, figure out like why did this happen? You know, I'm really I'm a very hands-on, handy kind of person. I I'm into carpentry. I own a home. I'm a homeowner and I do 90% of the stuff around the house. So I guess that's why I fell into this generalist role. And I like to know a lot about a lot of different things. And I, at a similar time, I picked up Stan Weinstein's book. So I was excited to see when he joined the space it was a, three months ago in one of George Noble's spaces. That was probably the first book I read, Making Money in Bull and Bear Markets. And that fire is still here today is like just the curio- endless curiosity of trying to understand the market, human behavior, what makes stocks go up and down. And so I started my career at Merrill Lynch. I had an internship as a technology person, like a, literally a business analyst, computer programmer back in 02. And I, was, I figured I want to do something that allowed me to combine my technology skills as a programmer and interest in economics and markets. 
And what I ended up doing, I was like a programmer on the Merrill Lynch website for ML Direct. I don't know if that still exists, but it was, it was like the private client brokerage website. And I did that for about a year. I was able to get my Series 7, but really just hate, uh, hated it. <laughs> Hopefully my former boss wasn't, isn't on here from 20 years ago. So I spent most of my second year working at Merrill just trying to figure out how I can get into markets, closer to markets. And I took the CFA program, figured that was a way for me to keep up with those my same age that were already there or you know trying to get to that same jump in track. And I was lucky in 03, I, I met a guy named Sasha Pradhuman, who was the small cap strategist at Merrill Lynch, who worked with Rich Bernstein. Many of you probably know that name back in the day who was the strategist of Merrill Lynch. And I actually worked uh, alongside Savita Subramanian, who is the current Bank of America strategist. So I, in 03, I got hired by Sasha and the small cap team. I remember getting the call from the job interview because Jim Cramer was talking about Apple stock at 35 bucks. And I just I remember that timestamp watching it on TV. And I got it into research. It was more of a quantitative research team. I did that for about three years finished the CFA program in a year and a half. And by early, mid-06, I thought, okay, I've done this quant stuff and I was just getting learning about markets and drinking from the fire hose. And it was a good time to be in markets. I bought a stock, my first stock at three, and it was Red Hat and the stock went straight up. And I was like, wow, this is easy. And of course, in 03, if you bought anything, it went straight up. And so I did that for a few years. And then by 06, I thought I was like, I want to be a stock picker because that was a cool thing to be back then. And so I started interviewing at Merrill within the small cap banks team. I think the analyst there, if I remember correctly, her name was Heather Wolf and one of, one of the top analysts at Merrill back then. And I basically got to a job offer by early 07 to go join that team internally and be the junior, junior person on a small cap bank analyst team. Unfortunately, I didn't take that job. Can you imagine being a junior person on the small cap bank analyst team in early 07 and what happened over the next two years? I think that so, means you're a micro analyst at that point. Is, is what it is, yeah. right. And so then I ended up taking a job at ISI Group, which was subsequently bought by Evercore. Ed Hyman, Nancy Lazar owned that firm and never heard of that firm. And uh, I worked with a guy named Francois Trahan. He hired me at ISI back in 2007. And uh, I've pretty much been with been in that role since we left there, went to go work for a, phone call, a firm called Wolf Research. Ed Wolf currently still owns and has expanded massively. We were there from 2012 to 2000, no, sorry, 2010 to 2013. And then we started Cornerstone Macro, Nancy Lazar, Roberto Perley, Andy LePerrier, who are all the kind of the macro folks now at where I am today at Piper Sandler. And so 2000, late, early 2018, I took over the strategy role. And the team that I'm still with right now, a guy named Stephen Gregory, Emily Nidell, Joe Ramirez, and Dan Nivash, we've been together for about 15 years collectively as a team. So, uh, And then Piper Sandler bought Cornerstone Macro. The deal closed in early, I think, February this year. And I've been the chief investment strategist at Cornerstone or now Piper Sandler since, um, say, the co-chief investment strategist or now the chief investment strategist for the last I don't know, seven or eight years. Most of my career is post-08 which is a world where everyone's on, on the same learning curve. And I remember when I was really young, I used to kind of be really intimidated by investors that were around, that were in their 40s or older, that had been around since the 80s and 90s. And at some point, I remember in 2010, realizing that a lot of investors that had been around that long were trained in just a different market regime and were just so used to you know, buy value. And obviously, value has been a horrendous style strategy from 06 through up until recently. 
And I just found it fascinating how the more I dug into markets and the more I understood, the more I was continuing wanting to question all this conventional wisdom garbage that was shoved down my throat and early in my career and that I keep hearing reiterated to this day. It's, I'm a big believer there's really no such thing as the normal. That's why you keep hearing that word new normal every uh, so often. Every decade has brought its own new normal and uh, that continues into this new normal. That's a quick uh, version of my uh, my history. So there's a lot I want to um, talk about here, but you mentioned your, your surprise when you were younger around this idea of how do you lose 70% in an investment? How do you just lose that much money? And I'd argue there are certain characteristics that make it likely for something like that to happen, but at the core, it's ultimately about excessive leverage when a regime is changing. It's at the inflection point where that leverage is based on whatever prior cycle there was, and investors are slow to respond to a new set of conditions. Now, that brings with it a conversation around cycles, and I retweeted and put it at the top of the space here this, I think, interesting way that you framed the cycle that we're probably in around hope. Talk about that idea, why is this sort of the progression with which you think the economy plays out? Just talk through that for a bit here. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Sure, yeah. I didn't really understand the cycle until I, until I joined ISI Group back in 07, 06, 07. Not that I didn't understand it, but just realizing how how much consistency there is across history. And, you know, over the years, you learn a lot every year. And that's the thing I love about this job is that, you know, I, I learn something new practically every day, which sometimes it humbles you and sometimes it just keeps you digging for something else. So that's what I love about what I do here. It's there's We're on the hamster wheel, especially from sell-side strategists where you're not running money. And so it's not like at the end of the year, you can explicitly see oh, I was up this percent or down this percent. You know, it's, it's a never-ending game chasing the carrot. And in 07, 08, I remember sitting in ISI's morning meeting. We used to do these morning meetings that Ed Hyman would host, and we'd bring in a lot of clients. And I remember in 07, it was almost cool to, for people would come in, and they would be like, I don't really focus on macro. I'm a stock picker. I'm a bottom-up. I don't really care where the market goes up or down. You know, I'm long, short, and macro doesn't really mean anything to me. And it was be funny to hear that because like you're sitting at a table of uh, being hosted by a firm that just does macro, at least back in 07. And the, and then what's what happened from there forward, obviously, I never hear that again. I mean, you sound how foolish one would say, one would uh, sound if they were like, you know, I don't really care about macro because everything is influenced by macro. And I got familiar over the years with how, what the market cares about. When, I, when if you're a stock analyst and I went through the whole CFA program, you know, I don't know how many, but let's say, I don't know, there's probably 80 different line items between the three financial statements. And I often look at fundamental research or hear fundamental analysts and they're talking about margins of this and earnings are going to be this. And you're just rattling off 15, 20 different line items. And I'm, it would always frustrate me because it's like, which ones matter? They can't all possibly equally matter. And so you same, think about the economy in the same way. There are thousands of macro data points 
out there from everything from leading economic indicators like the ISM index, consumer confidence, to coincident economic indicators like industrial production, payrolls, all the way to lagging indicators like loan growth, core inflation, and service inflation, whatever. And so when you familiarize yourself with what are the leading indicators of the economy, what are the coincident indicators, and what are the lagging indicators, it helps begin to shape and help you. Uh, someone who's focused on macro, you know, what should I be focused on? And in, to this day, you know, a lot of the pushback I've heard for the last three, four months about why the market shouldn't be as low as it is, people are pointing to lagging economic indicators. One example would be like the restaurants are full right now. Well, of course they are because we've just begun a global economic slowdown and labor is still really strong. And when people feel have a job, they'll go out to eat more. So that's not really a leading indicator. It's the back door of the business cycle. and It's not telling you anything. And so I've dug in over the years a lot to these the relationships between the timing of leading indicators change and lag indicators changing. But again, it was just too many data points to try to follow and put together and I like to keep things uh, as simple and clear and common sense as possible. So I know sometime in the last 10 years, I'm not sure how I came to get this whole hope cycle, but we realized there was a big focus around the housing market, obviously, after the crash in you know, 607, 08. And the more and more research I did was pretty clear. Housing is very rate sensitive in the United States. And even though it's a small part of our economy, I think housing is only 4 or 5% of GDP, it has probably the biggest multiplier effect of any part of the economy. And so as you, you know, try to simplify some of these indicators, you can realize a lot of the housing data is always the first to respond. In fact, every recession before it ends, you start to get better housing data, building permits, housing starts, and a rise in the NHB index. And that's usually followed by changes in manufacturing activity, like PMIs going up. And then after a couple quarters of a better PMI backdrop, think of the first six months of, of 2009, the economy ends the recession, which ended in June of 2009. And that's, you know, when that's obvious, that's when people start to get real optimistic about earnings. And then, uh, right, when companies uh, have profitability, they can hire, they can invest. And we simplified all of these leading economic indicators, coincident and lagging, into housing, orders, which is, you know, PMI new orders is probably one of the most macro, one of the most important macro data points to follow, which which is a leading indicator of the economy, like leading leads GDP, leads profits. So uh, the next, so H-O-P, profit growth, and then profit leads employment, E. And what I've realized over the last six or seven years, looking back at every cycle, and every cycle has differences, you know, they rhyme, they don't repeat. But when you go back and look at the bare basics of macro 101 of what, why do we have a business cycle? What starts it? What ends it? It's always the same thing. It's a change in the cost of money and the cost of goods. So those are, we often refer to those as anticipatory indicators. So changes in Fed funds rates, changes in mortgage rates, oil prices, import prices paid indices, money growth, the yield curve, you know, all of these are just very simple derivatives of monetary policy and inflation. And so every cycle, when you go back throughout history, housing always responds first in a recovery or downturn, followed by PMIs, followed by profits, followed by employment. And, and that's both in a recovery and a downturn. And so in this current environment where it's probably the most, we probably have the most uh, variability or, or the most cross currents I can think of in, in at least my career and early, probably at least 40 years, where I think a lot of people have lost their visibility because there's so many things to pay attention to and some things are getting better, some things are getting worse, some things are not doing anything. This hope 
cycle of our uh, that we've kind of uncovered. And I don't want to call it our cycle. It's, it's just or our framework. It's just I think it's the framework of how the economy changes has helped us really navigate with high confidence and visibility where we are in the cycle. What's the impact of rates that are they having a huge impact? Are they not having a big impact? What's the risks of uh, demand destruction You know, as we go through this cycle? And where we are today to bring it to the now We've been talking about, we've been, you know, real bearish on housing all year, housing and housing stocks. And now every day, it's like we get a worse and worse housing data point. We've also been bearish are talking about you know, why PMIs will continue to decline throughout uh, until the middle of next year. That's been playing out, obviously. And then this year, increasingly, even though rates has been the focus, what is quickly becoming the focus is the impact of higher rates on earnings. So that goes to the P. And we're just beginning to start to see unemployment claims, which is the leading indicator of all the employment data, start to rise as well. We've been in a rising trend for about two months now. So you can see this whole animal of the economy flexing its muscle or weakening its muscle throughout this uh, this process. And it's what kind of keeps me, allows me to sleep at night and not care too much about one day what happens in the market or one what one policymaker says and I think that's this having a framework that has evolved over the years has really, one, helped me sleep at night. And, you know, again, we're, we're wrong plenty, but it's it's helped us not to get caught up in, in an emotional way or in the news headlines to pull us away from what our framework is telling us. And again, most of the time it's right. And maybe yeah, 60, 65% of the time the framework's right. It's probably actually more than that. But then again, does the framework, what does it mean for the markets? That's where you can also have some tracking error. But, you know, in, in times of such great uncertainty, having a framework is extremely helpful. And this is probably the, the most important uncertain environment we've been in. Yeah, there's a few things I want to respond to on that. So you and I might think along similar lines, but with a, a different approach in the sense that when you talk about cycle changes being driven by the cost of capital, so yep. utilities, why do they outperform in advance of major tail events? Because it suggests demand for money is falling because they benefit from lower rates. Treasuries, of course, tend to be leading indicators themselves, although obviously not so much this year. And as far as housing, everything you said is everything that I preach when I'm on the road presenting at CFA chapters. It's the whole reason why I've got lumber and gold eyes, because if you if everyone agrees, which is factually true, that housing is a leading indicator, then lumber is a leading indicator of housing. Yeah. How much lumber is home? So we're going to hit on that because what's interesting here to me, I want to hit on this in a little bit, but what's interesting here to me is that we're at a, a point where asset markets are a lot lower, risk investments have collapsed in a lot of ways, but you're only now just starting to see the weakness in lumber, in, in, in housing, right? Lumber only, you know, maybe two months ago kind of peaked out. So that would argue that we still have much lower lows in the future to come, but I'm going to hit on that in a second. But there's something you said, which I want to focus on first, which is that you kind of alluded to this idea that you helps you sleep well at night to know the cycle that you're in, where you are in that kind of hope phase. But as we all know, Markets are funny in that you can be right and lose money or wrong and make money. Absolutely. Right, in terms of the execution. So I want you to talk about in this kind of part of the hope cycle, what types of assets would you be looking at to allocate to? Because other than commodities, everything's correlated in the same way. But talk about how where we are in that hope cycle might change the sort of opportunity set to play with. Yeah. And whether or not the Fed is tightening. So, you know, every cycle, some cycles, you go through that hope cycle, the, you know, go through an expansion, then a slowdown, and there's no inflation problems, and the Fed never even shows up. And then there's days like uh, cycles like the current one, where the Fed is, where is obviously tightening. And so that's, again, not every cycle's the same, not every expansion 
creates a tightening cycle. Most of them do. But, you know, one of the things we've observed, and unfortunately, we were as a firm calling for rates to come down and inflation to come down earlier than they did. It seems most on Wall Street were either on one side of it or on the other. So we were able to quickly adjust pretty quick in the year. We realized we were wrong on that. Usually, if you go throughout history, you look at bond yields and leading economic indicators, they pretty much move together. I like to look at the global PMI and the 10-year bond yield. The global, the 10-year bond yield is obviously a globally influenced market. And for one example of how things are different when the Fed raises rates versus when the Fed's not tightening in a slowdown where the Fed, I'm sorry, when a slowdown where there's no inflation pressures, let's say, let's look at 2014, for example, where you start to slow, bond yields pretty much immediately fall as growth slows. And really since the late 90s, when inflation really broke below 4%, you started seeing bond yields almost purely just trade with economic activity or growth activity. And so up until this year, where it's clearly completely deviated, and the Fed's raising rates, you can have a period. And it happens every time the Fed is raising rates where growth slows, but the 10-year yield, because we have higher inflation, because the Fed is tightening, will stay higher for longer. This is probably one of the longest periods or since the 70s where the ISM index has fallen and bond yields are still rising, obviously because we still have inflation that's going up. But you know, those are those times where nothing is obviously a perfect framework, and there's always things that happen for the first time or happen again that don't happen often that you have to try to figure out, you know, what are the odds that this is going to continue to deviate? And eventually, we know it's all going to come back together, but sometimes it could take a year. Maybe it doesn't just happen in a month where bond yields come right back down. I'm you know, glad you mentioned that because I think that's an important point. It's, I keep using this line that we live in the small sample. So it's mm-hmm. very clear we're in an anomaly as far as the cycle goes, because it's not even about the idea of stocks and bonds both falling and losing money, but it's in the relationship of volatility to bonds, right? Volatility and equities tends to be beneficial towards bonds. You haven't seen it. Bonds have actually been more volatile, right, in a lot of ways than stocks. So to your Absolutely. point, you have to, at the end of the day, hope that cause and effect still kicks back in beyond the anomaly. But to your point, you don't know exactly when that's going to revert. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. And even for those people, like the beginning of the year, one of the biggest calls was, especially on the macro side, right? Yields were going to go up. And a lot of people, for that reason, were very long financials. And I think, you know, what that hasn't really worked for three weeks, financials did. And what is, I think it's clear why financials and other groups that typically outperform when rates are rising are not outperforming because, you know, rates are not rising because the economy is getting better. And rates are rising as credit spreads are tightening, I'm sorry, widening which is not a commonplace, and that's pretty much the place we've been in most of this year. And so a lot of market relationships have broken down, and I think it's left people a lot, left a lot of quant funds confused and a lot left a lot of investors confused because you know rates are not rising for the reasons they usually rise, i.e. growth. Yeah, I think I lost track of your question there. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, no, that's, no that's good. And I only say that because it's, it, this is the challenge I think everyone has to think through. If you think about going back to the question of the opportunity side, the two things that have worked this year, 
or three things you can argue, are cash, shorting the broader market, and commodities. So really, those have been your three, and, and the dollar, right? So four things. Okay. Yeah. The problem is if you do any kind of rules-based strategy test where you play offense or defense, based on whatever indicator, whether it's uh, moving average or lumber to gold or whatever it would be, the problem is if historically, even in the 70s, you said your expression was risk off was to go cash, short, dollar, maybe less so on commodities with the 70s, it wouldn't work. Right. You're in an anomaly where the opportunity set for defense is working now, but would never have worked or any to any meaningful degree in prior cycles. And that's why, to me, this is also very dangerous for those that are bearish, right? which we should talk about, which is to say that there's a conviction that the market's going to keep going lower mm-hmm. in a in this unrelenting sequence week after week. But that may not be the case. So, so let's keep going with this thesis around housing and where we are, because – there's a lot of concern out there that the bottom is still going to fall out. Now, I myself have said many times, and this is just historically a fact, markets tend to crash from oversold levels. And I would argue sure. you're pretty close to a major thing happening. The problem, though, here, and this is why this is, I think, so tricky, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, is that the sentiment, I think, in the near term is extraordinarily one-sided. You talk about being bearish as a contrary indicator on stocks from a sequence of return perspective, far worse for bonds. And I yep. laid out a few of these kind of, let's call them positive surprise catalysts that could happen that could break oil and break concerns around the Fed. One, the Fed could end up saying, we're going to reverse course on the way QT is done and instead make it dynamic range bound as opposed to a set number per month. Yeah. That would, I think, cool off bonds. That could be a positive surprise. You could end up having some kind of deal being made because Biden needs to win right, with Saudi Arabia and OPEC and them, quote unquote, finding capacity that might. Yeah. Oil, right? Yeah. No, I'm, yeah. I'm very cynical about this idea that no, like, no. data shows the, all the, all, everything that's going on on the ground. It's not, right? Data is one thing, but it doesn't mean there's, there's always an estimation error. So the idea that we're at full capacity, I don't necessarily buy, right? So you could have a wind from Biden, which he needs, where he negotiates something, oil collapses because OPEC really steps in. And then uh, the other scenario is uh, maybe there ends up being a ceasefire with Russia, Ukraine, given that the Biden administration is arguing that, that maybe they should, uh, Zelensky should soften the stance and maybe give up some land. So you've got these, I think, three things that are pretty imminent, right, that could happen at any moment in time that could cause a huge relief rally. I want you to talk about how the bearish framework plays out time-wise, right? Because I think you would agree, too, that you could have these vicious rallies in this kind of yeah. environment before lower lows. Yeah, and and just to put for full transparency, our view has been this year that the market will not find the bottom, and that doesn't mean we could tell we could have a bull market and then another bear market before that right. happens. I don't think we will find the bottom in the market. And I just want to touch on this, but I'll get this kind of sets up the answer to that question, I think, a little better. But you know, it's worth going throughout history and again, knowing that we've never had this exact setup today. You never have you could say that at every cycle. But when you go through, you know, I went back to 1950, uh, which is funny. You think I would have done this 20 years ago, and I never did. But what was it four or five months ago? I went through and looked at very closely. It's pulled up on my Bloomberg, the S&P 500, made a panel chart, DPI, the ISM, the Fed funds, and just dragged through every single market downturn going back to 1950. And there's been 21 market downturns since 1950 of 10% or more. 20 of those occurred in a slowdown, which makes sense, right? That's when your markets go down because earnings slow, risks, bad things happen. And when the economy slows, that's where crises happen, except 1987, and that's the only outlier. So 20 of those 21 happened in a slowdown. Today would be the 21st slowdown-driven bear market. And 95% of those all bottomed within, on average, of one month of leading economic indicators bottoming, either the NHB index, 
or the ISM. The most the ISM bottomed after the market was four months, which is a single outlier. The standard deviation of that analysis, in other words, what's the standard deviation of what's one distribution of where the economy bottoms from the market? It's two months in terms of the variability. And on average, the number is one month. So basically, it's fair to say that 95% of market bottoms, ultimate bottoms, happen when leading indicators find a bottom and start turning up. And that, sh- that makes sense to me because leading economic indicators drive incremental market behavior, incremental fundamental analysis. That's why there's a ridiculously tight correlation between Wall Street consensus earnings revisions and the PMI. And that holds true in Europe. It holds true in Canada. It holds true in China. Every country, if you pull up their PMI and you pull up their analyst estimate revisions, they look just like the PMI. And so that's, it makes sense that when those indicators rebound, not only should the earnings outlook stop getting worse, doesn't necessarily get that much better immediately, but that's where typically you also see credit spreads peak. And that's your driver of the markets. Credit spreads or risk ultimately becomes the driver of PEs. It's not bond yields. It's not the Fed model or some banana model like that. It's risk. You know, and multiples and markets go down till risks peak. And the ultimate risk, even though today's major risk is inflation, the ultimate risk is always the economy. So I think that's an important kind of thing to put out there. Uh, but yeah, listen, there's an extreme level of bearishness today. Two months ago, when the Global Fund Manager Survey came out, and I used to work on that 20 years ago, I still have it in my handout today. Even though it's gotten a lot more bearish, cash levels have gone up, Global Fund Manager sentiment has gone even further down. The sentiment data, you know, I, I would and I would challenge anyone. I bet most people have gotten burned in their careers by two things: trying to be contrarian on sentiment and trying to be contrarian on valuation. Because I think at the end of the day, valuation levels and sentiment levels and cash levels and all that stuff, bearishness levels are all inform- are all informational. It's important to, to know where they are. But ultimately, I'm a big believer that it's markets that drive sentiment, not sentiment that drives markets. I think it's an important differentiating point. And you know, when people show these sentiment charts or valuation charts and be like, we're at levels where we bottomed in the past or whenever you fall this far, you typically get a bottom, but it's not because sentiment got so bearish. I think it's ultimately what made sentiment bearish, the views around there. And you just gave, Michael, three examples, you know, the end of the ceasefire, Biden going to OPEC, pump more, whatever brings inflation down a little lower, that'll be the bottom in sentiment, at least in the near term. But if it's not the bottom in the economy, it's unlikely to be the beginning of a risk on recovery in the market. You know, and I agree with that. And I will say this is about time frame, right? So I think from a from a short to intermediate term perspective, you could have what they would call a summer melt up with hindsight. And I know that's going to be contrarian to most people, but that's the whole point because the sentiment is so dark because the price action is so negative. And there's an underestimation of the positive tales that, that might come in, at least for the, a moment in time. Yeah. And I, I think what's interesting about that is it's probably going to mean both stocks and bonds rally together. Absolutely. Because, so you end up having, and I know you put out that tweet, I'll share it at the top in a second, that you mentioned this year's bear market is the equivalent of 43% of GDP, largest ever wealth destruction as percentage of GDP. You, that sounds like something you want to actually buy into, right? I'm mean, just objective. Like when you but, see data that's that unusual, right, for a trade at least, you can argue that's something to buy into. One other thing I'll, I'll mention real quick, which I'm sharing at the top here. So my friend David Deerking did a little look at utilities, which goes to the 2014 Dow Award paper that I'm known for. But basically, Utilities in 
kind of short bursts tend to lead in advancements of major stock market corrections, crashes, volatility. But if you notice, utilities last week had their seventh worst week since I think 02. The util- as much as markets got smoked, what's interesting is that defensiveness got smoked even harder. And yeah. I've seen that before, Mike, right? That usually when you see in a big market decline, defensive areas get harder, that's typically a short term inflection point. Right. So let's go with that for a bit. If you're going to put your tactical hat on and say, okay, maybe we have some kind of real run higher before ultimately lower lows. Again, that opportunity set, what is it that you would consider getting back into? You think tech comes back? You think energy keeps being the most? Yeah, so what's the play? So I think you know, it's important to understand why the market's down this year. And this goes into like, what is being discounted? What are we pricing in? And then that helps us think about where things could get worse from here. And so I think it's important to step back and say, okay, the market's down 20% plus. Why is it down? And so we can mathematically disaggregate that between multiples and earnings. And what is unique about this bear market that we have not witnessed, I don't know, you probably have to go back to the 70s, is that this entire move, just like the entire rally in 2020 up until the Pfizer vaccine, it was all multiple expansion. This And, and then the market went on to go up another 40% in the next 13 months when earnings kicked in. This has entirely been about rates resetting, multiple compression. And it's just beginning to become about earnings. So I think the big mistake in terms of, not the near, near term, but as we look out the next year, why this could go on a lot longer is we haven't had a bear market or even anywhere near this much of a sell-off that just comes from rates resetting. And when you hear people say it's the biggest rise in rates in history and it's the biggest loss in treasuries since 1778 or something like that, those are the inputs to our models that lead earnings. And so Take, take your fear around inflation and interest rates, and it's time to transpose that onto what it's going to mean for the economy and earnings. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that's priced in. So anything, so to me, so you know, what got crushed the most this year to date, right? It, it, it's been expensive companies, especially that don't make any money. That's been the worst performing factor this year. Second worst performing factor is actually value companies that don't make money. So it's on both sides of the style trade, you're getting blown up, and it's really about profitability. So the worst performers have been those that got hit by multiples, you know, the techs, obviously, from a sector perspective, or the queues or the growth index is a simple way to, to, to look at that. And it's been my view that for the last two to three months now that we're going to be, we are transitioning and we'll continue to transition into a market that's much more focused on the downside risks to growth than the upside risk to inflation and interest rates. That means leadership should change. And that you know, obviously is important for your model or investment portfolios as well, right? If rates can stabilize here or even go down a little bit, if we start getting some better CPI prints or worse economic data prints, that's going to shift leadership. I, you know, if you look at the Russell 1000 growth to value index for the last month, it's been flat. You haven't, you're seeing the spread of underperformance of growth to value shrink as it should, right? Because the big underperformance of growth happened mostly in the first three months of this year. And it continued, but it's, you know, since May, it's not gotten worse. You've now started to see big blowups in coming from earnings and other cyclical areas of the market as the economic data have deteriorated. So yeah, I think, you know, is it time to buy bonds yet? I don't think so. And this, I think, is important to look back at history and look at every Fed tightening cycle back to the 70s. The big bond rally happens when the Fed stops raising rates every single cycle. It's not when they cut, which bond yields will be going down when they cut. It starts when they stop raising rates. Every one of those cycles, you get a meltdown in yields when the Fed is done, and you get a big relief rally in the equity market because yields are coming down. 
And so that that could last three to four months, like it did from May to two, May 2000 to October 2000. I guess that was five months. The outlier, which everyone is hoping for and has in their memory, is 2018, where it lasted pretty much, you could argue, almost indefinitely. You know, the bottom of the market was basically the beginning of 2020, 20, sorry, 2019. And that ultimately was the beginning of a new bull market. You know, obviously, if COVID hadn't happened, we would have been off to the races in 2020. The global economy was clearly improving in late 2019 and early 2020 before COVID hit. But that is an anomaly. That's the only time that happened. And we could talk about for a while why that won't happen in this cycle in terms of a kind of the beginning of a new bull market. But I do think, to me, the biggest risk to bears or the biggest, longest bear market rally we'll see will be when the Fed or investors believe the Fed is pretty much done. Now, that may not all happen in one shot because, listen, if we get a CPI print next month, that's lower. Obviously, that's positive for equities. And so maybe we'll get it over the course of a couple months where we'll see mini rallies as the data improve. And so if we look forward, we clearly know the market is totally focused on inflation data, right? And the growth data is slowing, but it's not horrible yet, right? People are still in restaurants. We're just seeing the housing data really get ugly. PMIs are still above 50. Employment's still solid. So you know, while the eco data will weaken, that actually may support the same trend that markets will respond as inflation data weaken, right? Anything that makes the Fed less hawkish is bullish. So, And there's a lot of things that could do that. While I don't think the market's going to bottom until the economy bottoms ultimately next year, or another way to say that, I don't think it's you know, want to be really in cyclicals or risk on beta for more, more than a short-term relief rally until next year. There are plenty of things that could obviously make the market pop higher. And you know, for all I know, we, we may go sideways here with a range of 10 to 15 percent on the upside for the next six months. As you know, if inflation, if the problem is inflation and that gets a little better, even if growth slows. It's the biggest problem you always got to focus on because that has the most impact on the markets. And if we went sideways like that, FinTwit would lose its mind, right? <laughs> Which is just because oh that would God. be as maddening for everybody. You can imagine, but been waiting patiently here to ask the questions. So go ahead and unmute yourself. Uh, can I just say the, the reason that it looks so delayed is because it probably had to go through a month of compliance review. Which, I, on a side <laughs> note, is always funny to me because I, I sent out an email talking about uh, to email blast and. It's funny, I had forgotten that the numbers were the market's down around 10%. This was like a week ago or two weeks ago when I when it was put out. Went through compliance. A week later, I get it. Then I submit it earlier this week. And people are like, when did you write this? The market's down 20%. Yeah, because five days, the market collapsed. And you have to do compliance review. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, 100%. You know, And we look at like revolving credit is skyrocketing now. It's up 16% year over year at a time where consumer confidence is at the lowest in history. The last time we saw a divergence of anything like that was in 08, early 08, and then again, early 2000. So it's definitely, it basically shows you consumers are getting forced to borrow, right? People don't borrow when, people don't spend money when they're feeling poorer, which is, I think, confidence helps point that out. And the pushback we get, I'm sure we've all heard, is that, look, consumer confidence has been in the dumps for two years now, and yet consumer spending has been strong up until recently. But yeah, that's what happens when you give them an artificial sweetener of a stimulus bill. So I, I think that's clearly, that's over. The savings that consumers piled up during the pandemic has drawn down. We're back to pretty low levels of consumer savings. And obviously, food and energy is going up every single day. So you know what happened in this cycle with the easing cycle was we, we didn't get, even though the Fed rate cut rates and the balance sheet exploded, if you look at credit card interest rates, the Fed publishes an index on Bloomberg. I'm sure it's on St. Louis Fred. It's the Federal Reserve Consumer Credit Card 
credit commercial bank credit card rate. In a normal Fed tightening, or let's say a normal Fed cycle, easing cycle, credit card rates will come down because it's the prime rate that helps determine the credit card rates of most of, you know, if you look at your APR, it usually says prime plus nine and a half percent or whatever, or something, you know, for some people it's even a lot higher. It's the prime rate. And as the Fed raises rates and pulls rates down, that influences the prime rate, that drives the prime rate. And so in the easing cycle, the credit card rates never went down. In 2010, in two, from 2010 to 2015, credit card rates were at about 12%, 12 to 13%. And then in the tightening cycle in 16, 17, and 18, they went up to about 16 to 17%. The low since then is 16%. They never went down. And now they're going back up again because the Fed's raising rates or they're, they're not, maybe they don't go up as much as they would because of the hiking cycle because they never went down. But yeah, you never got credit card interest rate relief to consumers when the Fed eased. Obviously, there's other forms of relief. But so, yeah, that makes sense. That could be the one to early to show up earlier because everyone's rates are as bad as they've been since 2018, effectively. And so, yeah, I think you're starting to see auto delinquencies as well. Auto rates are going up now, auto financing rates. And that's also driven by the Fed funds, the prime rate, which the Fed determines. And so, yeah, what we're hearing is, you know, though most banks in the United States have don't securitize that, that kind of stuff as much, you know, the regional banks, they're not, you know, maybe they're exposed to housing, but they don't really hold a lot of that stuff in their books like they did in the last crisis. Those are the banks, to your point, that do have some of that risk. And they are saying, they are starting to see those numbers go up. So I do think we will see default risk rise. And, and the pushback that it's not 08 is not a valid pushback against the market going down further from here. It's interesting. It's informational. I don't think this is going to be another GFC, but I do think this is going to be another recession that's going to be a lot worse than the one we saw in 2001. And by the way, real yeah. quick, I just shared on the space. So it's interesting because yeah. all that is valid around the consumer, but I, I just did this real quick. If you look at consumer discretionary XLY divided by the S&P, you're actually at the COVID crash level. So I'm only showing that because I think internally within the market, there is that bet. And it may already be somewhat, at least in the near term, priced in, which again, I can argue is a bit of a contrarian indicator. Yeah. And I would, instead of, I wouldn't, you know, what's, I'm a big believer what's priced in is what we know. And you know, we can look at a right. lot of charts right. with leading economic indicators and prove that out. And I think every incremental data point influences people's outlook and that influence of their outlook changes their trading behavior and markets respond. So I, I'm a big believer that markets are reactive more than they're so forward looking, which is one of those things that everyone shoves down your throat to believe. And I've yet to see a chart of stock prices that really lead PMIs by six months. And they, the problem is it's, they do lead lagging indicators, but who cares about lagging indicators? That's but, but in fairness, Mike, you do care about lead lag. I just want to say it, make, make that clear. Because that's the, the space. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's a way to get ahead of the lead, though, right? I mean, lead, yeah, lead, that's the idea. Sure. Like a new order inventory to new order ratio is a lead lag. Sure. And that's important because you want to know how much worse, you know, because the lagging indicators ultimately could be a problem as we go forward. Inventory levels is one example. A crazy amount of loan growth towards the end of the cycle could blow up as lead indicators really plummet. So, yeah, they are important. And that's, you nailed it, Mike. It's understanding how to model them and how they fit into the cycle that matters. It's not saying employment's strong or loan growth is strong right now. I don't think is anything bullish. I think it's just, okay, that's what happens in this point in the cycle. Loan growth picks up late in the cycle because banks don't ease lending standards until the economy improves. Those two specific things, I don't, but I, I, that's an interesting way to, that is an interesting angle. I, I think, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, right? This bear market started 
not because earnings fell out of bed, not because economic data blew up. It started with rates rising. And so when you look at the market, so wow, it's down 23, 24%. Consumers are still spending, you know, holding up, and this is still good, and that's still good. It's because we're so used to growth-driven bear markets where delinquency rates are the reason why stocks start to go down, not interest rates, which ultimately lead delinquency rates down the road. And so I, what I keep saying to clients, like, you got to be patient. It takes time for all of this rise in rates, you know, this year and a half move now we've had to start to flow through the consumer. And just because the market's down 20% plus already, that and it's not due to that kind of stuff, as that stuff shows up, it doesn't it certainly doesn't mean it's not going to show up or it's or you know just because it hasn't yet, but it's when you look at the hope cycle process we walk through or look through any lead lag on consumer delinquency rates, it you know ultimately comes back to the lead of interest rates and then how that and when that impacts employment. And it's just we're too we're too early in this economic slowdown cycle to to really be seeing that in a big way. I think fast forward six months, we're going to have a very different, more bearish tone around the consumer from an earnings, from an from a wages, from a employment side of things. Now, to Mike's point, listen, if inflation starts to come down, that consumer discretionary space, which is in the dumps right now, that's the trigger that usually gets them to relatively outperform retailers and other consumer areas. You know, typically consumer discretionary stocks do well in the last six months or so of a, of a recession because or six to nine months, because that's when interest rates are collapsing. That's when oil prices are collapsing. That's when the markets are struggling and cyclicals are really getting blown up. And so I still think that's largely ahead of us. So to me, I would be lightening up to some extent, but not fully on the consumer stuff, but very closely watching the employment stuff. But if the employment data starts to get worse, while that's a direct negative impact to the consumer, that sector may not actually be the one that gets hit the most. It may more, it may likely more be financials that get hit harder because as people lose jobs, that's where credit risks really start to build up. And there's no sector that's more, even though this is not 06, 07 for financials, the simple reason financials are underperforming this year is because their multiples have compressed and their multiples have compressed because we've seen a, a tightening of financial conditions, which their multiples correlate with very tightly over the last 30, 40, 50 years. But to your question, so I don't have an answer specifically for that, but I would watch not only consumer sentiment, of course, but we look at a measure called consumer free cash flow, which is basically consumer discretionary, how much money is left over after they pay their food, energy, and debt service bills. That was at an all-time high going back 50 years, a year and a half ago. And now that's just been trending lower and lower. And that's always been a great way to think about the relative performance of the consumer space. And so to Mike's point, if oil or inflation as a share of income, if real income can stop going down, that could be something that not only puts a bottom in the, a temporary bottom in the market, but also could make stocks that have gotten punished the most because of higher rates, higher inflation, growth stocks, and not all of them, but quality ones, and some of the consumer areas, that's where I think the money would go. People aren't going to be buying utility stocks if they start to see oil come down because right. uh, this early in the slowdown. Fast forward six or nine months, if, employment, if unemployment claims are 350, 400, we're in a recession and none of that matters. Right. And, and it's interesting you mentioned, again, utilities because the behavior Friday, the timing of this Saudi Arabia trip and utilities breaking down, uh, maybe it's just faces in the cloud, but that could be an interesting data point for at least a short-term reversal here. But I want to go to the first part of the space, which we haven't really hit on for the remaining four or five minutes here. The Bitcoin crash, which you can also call another day that ends in Y, the way yeah. that this is playing out. I've made this point before, Mike, that I think that there's so much leverage in the space 
that it's not impossible to see cryptocurrencies in this decline potentially create a systemic event. I don't think it's a high probability, but I think it's a non-zero probability. And I say that because of the cross-correlations that happen. You know, when you have a crash in one asset class, you tend to have it not just be isolated in that single asset class because everyone has to deal with margin, no matter if it's on a portion of their portfolio or the whole portfolio. Talk about how you're seeing this decline here in cryptocurrencies if you if it makes you a little bit nervous or if it maybe strengthens your resolve that things are going to be a lot lower because you talk about unemployment going up, you're probably going to have a lot of people suddenly looking for work and changing professions if you're in another crypto winter. Yeah. And I think Bitcoin to me, you know, I'm not, I don't, we don't have time for a funny story, but my, I bought my first Bitcoin at 12 bucks, but I'm still here working every day. So that didn't end as well as it sounds as it could have ended. And it was an accident, but that's a story for another day. Bitcoin to me, and this is some, I just kind of stumbled upon the relationship of Bitcoin and higher high beta stocks or the beta trade about a year ago. And I just tweeted a chart of it. So you can want to throw it in the nest. And Bitcoin, you know, a lot of people have been showing it with the NASDAQ because the NASDAQ's become beta because the market's gone straight down. Bitcoin for the last two and a half years increasingly has been trading like the beta trade, which, you know, I look at the S&P high beta to S&P low vol. It's the two Invesco ETFs. And look at that chart. It's almost tick for tick every day. It's, it's absurd. So what it shows you is that right now, and, you know, I don't care about where Bitcoin's going to be in, in a year or five years from now, maybe not in a year, but right now, Bitcoin is trading like any other high beta instrument. Right, it was, but more Quinston, not leading, right? Because I think a lot of no, people are thinking no, not at all. It, it's, right, it's trading, and again, look at the so you know, if you put that chart there, you go. So you got it in the nest there. That's high to low beta and Bitcoin. So my view, this, I, this I've talked about this on Spaces going back, I don't know, three, four, five months. That I think high beta stocks. You I mean talk about what to avoid? I wouldn't. I would stay away from them for the next year, notwithstanding you know getting relief rallies and those will bounce a little bit, but. High beta stocks are the perennial blowups. And again, it's not one sector. It's more of just thinking as a factor in general across stocks. So beta gets crushed until the economy bottoms. And so I think, you know, we got a lot, we got a lot more room for that to go. And I tweeted a second chart, which shows where I think beta is headed. And if beta is trading exactly like Bitcoin today or Bitcoin trading exactly like beta, maybe that relationship breaks down. But again, why is beta? Bitcoin is just another one of these beneficiaries of all this liquidity and euphoria We've seen bubbles like this before. And again, I'm not, I have no interest in a debate of where it's going to be in five years. What I have interest in right now is that this, uh, so far, this has continued to maintain this really tight relationship with market beta. And I said back at 40,000, it's going to get cut in half and we're there. And I said at 30,000, it's going to get cut in half. So that's 15K. And I think we're going to get there. And I don't know how low it's going to go, but I, I think when it will stop going down, wherever that price is, will be when we hit that ultimate bottom in risk off or the beginning of risk on, which our models tell us is not until 15 months from now. And I know it sounds like a long time, especially given how far the market's down. But again, the market is down for the same reasons the economy is going to get crushed over the next 15 months, higher rates. And I think Bitcoin, for the same reason, liquidity is going away, you know, sentiment going down hard. It's all playing out, again, in this very classic cycle framework and beta is the most likely most consistently punished and bitcoin it looks exactly like beta yeah i'll go back to that point i've been saying for a while which is that it's all one big fucking leverage trade everything is basically acting yeah. the same because it's all based on liquidity and to me i'll tell you just this is more yeah i would say i can't prove this in any real way but it seems to make some sense that i put this poll out what is bitcoin and i had four different options an inflation hedge a store of value an investment or all of the above and 67% of people chose options that were not 
and investment. And it always goes back to me that to this point that I keep making that unless you define things properly, you end up overweighting that thing you're investing in based on a narrative that isn't really real. And that creates these air pockets, these tail events, right? The overconfidence. I don't think Bitcoin Absolutely. bottoms until I don't think Bitcoin bottoms and cryptocurrencies in general bottom until people start to realize the meaning of what they've been saying for years to make them reevaluate what it is they're actually putting money at risk in. So when was the peak in Bitcoin? The peak was the high at 60. What was that? That was Yeah, it was around August, I think it was somewhere around there. I don't remember the exact. It was and it was also around by the time around the time that Paris Hilton put laser eyes for whatever. So it affected well, it kind of looked like it hit three tops at the same time. So to me right. the the major move was the vaccine news. And I don't know why vaccine news would make Bitcoin go up, but it did. Why? Because it's the same beta trade as beta and the market. And it effectively peaked. It hit 60K for the first time in March of 2021. And that is where every single risk on factor part yep. of the market's relative performance peaked. Why? That's right. Because in March of 2021, at least one of the reasons why, all the macro data was at its peak. Nothing yep. incrementally, collectively got better from there. The PMI stayed at the six, in the 60s throughout last year, but they didn't go up to 70. Right. The NHB peaked few months before then at 90. So nothing got better except laggy indicators, which is irrelevant. And let me just say, and I don't know, I got a few more minutes, but I want to just lay out this last, I want to lay out one last thing to again, reinforce the point here of where we, I think we are on the market cycle. From the low in March, when the Fed jumped in, gave us this massive liquidity, markets went up 48% until we got the vaccine news. So for six months, we had a 48% gain. It was purely PE expansion. It was all liquidity and fiscally driven. And so if you were sitting there on, on November 1st when the Pfizer and vaccine news came out, you could have said, just like people are saying today, the market's already up 48%. We're back to the 2019 highs. It's already priced in. Of course, we know we're going to reopen. And now we have that vaccine news, which we all knew was coming. So it's already priced in. I mean, I can say the same nonsense that people are saying today on the flip side. Everyone was bullish back then, just as bearish as they are today. And over the next 13 months, the market went up another 45% or so. And all of that was from incremental earnings data getting better and better and better. Ex expect expectations of earnings kept getting better. And so to me, I think we're just in a mirror image of the last 2020 and 2021, because what's happening now, the exact opposite of what happened March 27th with a low in the bottom in, 20, in 2020 was Jan 1 this year, where the Fed said, we're going to start taking out liquidity. Rates are going up, not going down. And markets started coming down on PE compression. And what were the best stocks in the first six months of that rally besides high beta stocks, which today low beta stocks are some of the worst? Growth stocks did great in the first six months, by far better than value in 2020. And now they're getting crushed. So it's a perfect mirror image. And now what's ahead of us? 15 months of earnings estimates declines. So to say today, I think we're not going to go any lower or it's all priced in or yes, I agree, we're going to slow, but it's already priced in is like sitting there in November 1st of 2020 and say the vaccine news came out, hey, it's already priced in. Of course, we all know people are going to come back to come back to work, start spending more. And I think I see a very pure reflection of that in this cycle and what's and that's what a cycle is, right? What takes you up often takes you down. So just want to leave, leave that for people to think about. That sounds pretty biblical to me, my friend, which is basically a mean aversion in that statement. So everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Mike Kantrowitz has some phenomenal research. Mike always a Pleasure speaking with you. I think you should change your Twitter picture back to your face because I need some something to look at other than hope because I yeah. feel pretty down like everybody else. So anyway, <laughs> thank everybody for joining and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks, Mike.
The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.